Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Gypsy Hunking's 19-year-old daughter Carly and her boyfriend Dorian would drive 175 kilometers from Portage La Prairie to Alonza, Manitoba for a Sunday dinner and they did this every weekend. Late in August of 2017 was no different. A birthday party was being held that day and a powwow in Sandy Bay. So it was a big family day and they were not going to miss it. Carly was close with her family and was popular because she was fun and had a good sense of humor. After the festivities, the young couple headed home along Highway 16 and were heading on a left turn onto the Trans-Canada Highway when their Kia Forte collided with a semi-trailer carrying a load of heavy pipes. The couple was pronounced dead at the scene of the crash, and at 12.30 in the morning, officers arrived at Gypsy's home to tell her and her husband Everett that there was an accident on the highway and that there were no survivors. Gypsy never hosted Sunday dinner again. Gurjant Singh, a 23-year-old semi-truck driver from British Columbia, was charged with two counts of criminal negligence causing death and two counts of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. He was also charged with careless driving causing death under the Provincial Highway Act. Gurjant has not been tried in court yet. He was out on bail since he was charged in 2017 and he was to make a plea on March 14th of this year, but the case was remanded. Because at that hearing, the judge was told that the defense was working on an agreement with the Crown. The Hunking family was dismayed. They had communicated with the Crown attorney early in the new year and were told that the driver of the semi-trailer would most likely get a three-month suspension on his license and be given a fine. While seeming unacceptable in severity, something happened in the interim that made this suggestion seem even more dreadful to the family than before. When they are able to attend the hearing for the truck driver to enter his plea and be sentenced, they will inevitably be comparing verdicts with another tragic case of a semi-truck driver blowing through a controlled intersection. The case was longer in scope in terms of victims, but exactly the same in terms of conditions. And the question of the number of passengers in the vehicle making any difference in terms of sentencing will be raised. And we are going to look into that case now. So please, don't leave me. There were a few Junior A hockey teams in Humboldt, Saskatchewan's history going as far back as the 1940s. Yet, it wasn't until some local organizers decided to pair up with the Swift Current Broncos from the Western Canada Hockey League and create a new Junior A club in the 1970s. That was when the Humboldt Broncos became a part of Saskatchewan's Junior Hockey League and a very successful club at that. 
They've won the championship in Saskatchewan's league 10 times and the junior A-level championship twice since that event had been created in 1996. They have also won the RBC Cup, given out by the Royal Bank of Canada. Several players went on to the NHL since the inception of the team, including Kurt Giles, Bill McDougall, Sheldon Brookbank, Terry Rakowski, Neil Howerloo, and finally, Grant Jennings, who played 389 games in the league with the Washington Capitals, Hartford Whalers, and Maple Leafs, as well as the Pittsburgh Penguins, with whom he won the Stanley Cup twice in 1991 and 1992. On April 8th of 2018, it was announced that when the Winnipeg Jets and the Chicago Blackhawks played a scheduled game that Saturday, they would be wearing the Broncos' nameplates on their jerseys. Pitcher Marcus Stroman, who was starting pitcher that day for the Toronto Blue Jays, would write Humboldt Broncos on his hat, and Joey Votto, who was the first to take base with the Cincinnati Reds, with the Broncos' team name written on his cleats. The Toronto Maple Leafs put the Broncos' logo along their dressing room wall, the Elgar Patterson Arena, the team's home rink, had flowers laying on the steps leading to the building's entrance. The Saskatchewan Premier made a statement to the media stating, From a grieving province, thank you to the first responders and medical professionals for their courageous response under the most difficult circumstances imaginable. Tonight, we must pray for these families. The Humboldt Bronco community was never going to be the same again. Jaskarat Singh Sidhu and his wife came to Canada from India in 2013, shortly after they were married. Jaskarat had just completed his Bachelor of Commerce degree back home, and his wife had chosen Calgary as the place to settle down the son of a farming family who ran a 50-acre plot that produced wheat, rice, and corn. Once setting up in Canada, he and his partner were both working on post-secondary degrees, while Jaskarat also worked part-time at a local liquor store. While the majority of Sidhu's family remained in India, he and his wife had still maintained a close relationship with all of them. When his studies were completed, he was made manager of the shop. He then took a one-week course to become a transport driver in the summer of 2017 and was awarded his license for his Class 1 certification, or a commercial truck driver's license. In Canada, that allows you to operate a semi-trailer truck. Jaskarat abruptly obtained employment that March on the 17th of 2018, being hired by a smaller trucking company that at the time operated only two trucks, called the Adesh Deal Trucking Limited. He was shadow trained with the owner and operator, or another driver, for 15 days before he was out on the road on his own by his third week. The near 30-year-old newly married man was now settling into his life in Canada and was working hard. And now that he was driving solo, he was sent to Carrot River, Saskatchewan to pick up a load of 900 bales of peat moss 
and deliver it back to Alberta. The Humboldt Broncos team and coaching staff, along with a physical trainer and a broadcaster, were all loaded up into a bus on April 6th that Friday for a playoff game near Nepean, Saskatchewan. There's an observed set of rules that seem to persist. The rookies sit at the front of the bus with the coaching staff and other grown-ups, while the more veteran players head to the back of the bus. Yet, no matter your seniority, the players all had brightly bleached blonde hair. Everyone finds their seats and gets settled in the bus, and the driver, Glenn Duerksen, gets them on the road towards Nipawin for their playoff game. That Friday, Mr. Sadu was well-rested and headed on the highway to pick up his load in Carrot River. He had never been to this spot before and found himself lost and stuck on the roadside. Eventually, a friendly passerby got him set onto the correct path and he was back on the road. This disorientation is notable to me. He's still, at this point, a fairly novice driver and he's driving quite a large rig. And now... He's already getting unclear of exactly which way his destination is, and even pulled over with a map, he requires help to figure out exactly where he's headed. However, he did make it to the plant, and his B-train style, or Super B truck, was loaded. The truck is a semi-trailer unit, followed by a lead trailer, and then what is called a pup trailer. In all, about 25 meters or 82 feet in length. So, it was a significant load of peat moss. After the trailers were loaded, they were secured in place by tarps. Once he set off on his drive back towards Alberta, he became distracted by one of the tarps flapping behind him. He could tell that one had become undone and was no longer secured to the trailer. So, dutifully, he pulled over and he secured the tarp properly and resumed his route. By now, the boys on the bus are edging a bit closer to their destination, and most are listening to music or just relaxing looking out the window, while others begin putting on their game day attire. It's a routine to have the boys of both teams wear a suit when they come into the rink on game day. Most don't want to suit up before getting on the bus, so they change when they're on the bus and edging closer to their rink. Caleb Dahlgren called out to Nick Shulmansky just in front of him, asking where he lived. Nick shouted back, Oh, it's coming up. And Caleb responded, Oh, that's awesome. And then Parker Tobin, a couple of seats to the right, chimed in, Ah, nobody cares. And then everyone on the bus erupted into laughter. Caleb chirped back, Well, I care. And then everyone just kept cracking up. It's typical road conversation for a bus full of young men heading to a hockey tournament. Caleb threw his headphones on and zoned out to focus for the game. He woke up four days later in a hospital, asking how the game went. Jasker Atsudu is now heading west on the secondary highway 335 towards the intersection of 335 and Major Arterial Highway 35 that connects Nipawin to Tisdale. The Bronco boys are heading north towards Nipawin and they will approach the intersection with Highway 335 going west where a car is stopped 
and waiting for the bus and the two vehicles behind it to pass. As Jaskeret was heading towards the intersection, he was focused on the tarps and trailers behind him. He spent long spans of time not even looking ahead at the road, but looking in the side mirrors. He saw signs as he approached the intersection, but was preoccupied with the load in the back of him and didn't register the messages on the road signs. 406 meters before the intersection, a sign warning that a junction in the highway was ahead. 301 meters ahead, a sign sat warning, stop sign ahead. About 200 meters before the intersection, another sign boasted. Groenland, ahead. Tisdale, left. Nippowin, right. Before the intersection, yet another sign declares that highways 35 south and 35 west and 35 north is 100 meters up ahead. And finally, 19 meters east of the intersection, what is classified as an oversized stop sign, which is four feet in diameter and has an affixed red flashing light that flashes once per second, is screaming simply, stop. Mr. Sidhu was traveling at 96 kilometers per hour, looking behind him as he overtook the intersection, spanning all lanes of the highway as the Humboldt Broncos are heading straight into the intersection at 96 to 107 kilometers, with full brakes screaming on the road, only able to skid about 24 meters before slamming straight into the 45,365 kilograms of truck and peat moss. All 29 people on the bus were injured or killed. Tyler Bieber, age 29. Logan Hunter, 18. Logan Boulay, 21. Jackson Joseph, 20. Dana Bronze, 24. Jacob Licht, 19. Mark Cross, 27. Connor Lucan, 21. Glenn Dirksen, 59. Logan Schatz, 20. Darcy Hogan, 42. Evan Thomas, 18. Adam Harold, 16. Parker Tobin, 18. Brody Hines, 18. Stephen Wack, 21. Jaskaratsadu survived. Kelsey Fiddler had just pulled over her red Buick on the shoulder lane of Highway 335. Her hands were shaking as she saw in her rearview mirror the bus on its side next to the overturned semi-trailer. She had just briefly missed being sandwiched in between those two vehicles, and as she narrowly missed, she heard what sounded like an explosion, and the rumbling that followed shook her vehicle. She sat there, shaking, and repeated, Lord, Lord, Lord. She gathered herself and dialed 911. After telling the dispatcher to send help, she pleaded with her two sons in the back seat not to look back. 
or stare towards the direction of the wreckage. They were crying and she grabbed their hands as they recited the Lord's Prayer together. She saw there were victims laying on the icy ground and she began to gather two pillows and a fleece blanket that she had in her trunk. She flagged down a bystander to take them along as they headed towards the crash to help. She got back in her vehicle and moved it out of the way so responders would have room to park at the scene. And then her contractions began. Kelsey was expecting, and her heavy breathing alerted an officer to have a paramedic check her out. Concerned that she would go into premature labor, they heralded a stretcher. Kelsey refused to take up the space on an ambulance and would not accept the ride. She declined, saying, I can take myself to the hospital. She felt that the resources were more necessary for the victims, so she drove to the Nippowin Hospital, where later her contractions escalated to nearly one in every five minutes. Miles Shmulansky received a frantic call from his son Nick, claiming the bus was in an accident. He gathered his wife and raced in the vehicle to the crash site less than a quarter mile from his home. They were the first family members on the scene and he could see that a devastating accident had occurred, noticing that when Nick came running to him, he was the only one of two kids that seemed to be able to walk. The remaining Broncos were stuck under debris and couldn't move, and everyone on the scene was in shock. Nick was sent to the vehicle, and along with other passing motorists, Miles tried to keep with the chaos. They held kids steady and tried to do what they could while they waited for emergency personnel to arrive. They were getting whatever blankets, jackets, or anything on hand that could be used to keep the boys covered from the cold. There were several very injured boys and they were in the snow and ice. Some helpers were trying to crawl under parts of the bus to reach victims and do what they could and saw things that deeply hurt them emotionally. Time was standing still and they saw that the bus was unrecognizable. The roof almost totally removed from the front of the vehicle and in dire condition. At approximately 5.20, the firefighters arrived and Miles called yelling to them, you guys need more help, get more help. Helicopters and air ambulance planes were there to transport critically wounded patients to the Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon. It was about 270 kilometers away. The accident was declared a code orange, which is meant to warn that mass casualties are en route. Many of the first responders had ties to the accident. It was so close to home and the community was close. Because Nick, fortunately, was able to move on his own. They wasted no time getting him to the hospital in Tisdale, where by then other families were starting to show up and the chaos continued. Vague and inaccurate or confusing information was being buzzed about and the claims of this person or that person had passed while other parents beside themselves with worry were claiming that they hadn't found their son yet some had been sent to one hospital, while others were sent to another, and by a few hours, it became difficult because the families not notified yet knew that there was a problem. 
Families of the more rookie players seemed to be the ones left hanging back. And from the seating arrangements on the vehicle, this was a very bad sign for them. The boys in the hospital were seen supporting each other. They were all like family and the community was coming together too. Emergency staff were doing whatever they could, even in the face of a shortage of planes. There were planes sent from Edmonton, Alberta to help transport victims of the crash. As kids in different degrees of emergency were shuffled into order of most serious, and as more kids arrived, that bar was raising higher and higher. That evening, Kelsey Fiddler, the pregnant woman who was the first to alert 911 about the crash, was being taken in an ambulance to Saskatoon. She was still feeling paranoid and repeatedly reminded the paramedics to be cautious of oncoming semi-trucks. En route to Saskatchewan, another patient was loaded into the ambulance. It made Kelsey wonder when she saw his shock of blonde hair. She overheard him complaining that he must have hurt his shoulders while playing hockey. She began to cry as she realized that he didn't know what had happened to him and was not yet aware of the enormity of the crash or what had transpired that evening. She prayed for him, knowing that he was going to be heading into some of the most overwhelming physical and emotional times of his life. Miles Schumansky was noted saying, the people who struggled to help those boys will never be the same again, adding that none of them were being a hero. They just seemed to jump in and do what seemed natural without any hesitation. Nick was one of the lucky ones, one doctor claiming he is actually a miracle. He was told that he would be able to play hockey again as he suffered no head injuries and only had a chipped vertebrae and an injury to his shoulder. He was able to go home. Kelsey Fiddler was also released from hospital the following Monday, still pregnant, but had managed to evade a disaster not once, but twice that weekend. Meanwhile, parents were making tough decisions, and the chaos was still prevailing. By the time Nick was heading home, Lethbridge's own Logan Boulay's family was with him as he was on life support until the arrangements could be made for his organ donation. Boulay, who was described as a caring, humble, and genuine man who would do anything for anyone before himself, would go on to save at least six persons' lives through organ donation, making him a young but very suitable Canadian hero. After this news was released, 3,071 Albertans alone registered as organ donors over one weekend, in contrast to the weekly average of 425. It remains impossible to gauge how far-reaching Logan's influence will be and how many lives will be saved by those he inspired to register to be organ donors. More news of the victims was beginning to be made public. The assistant coach from Strasbourg, Saskatchewan, who had been named most valuable player the previous year, 
playing with the Maroons Highway Hockey League, had passed. Mark Cross was known as someone that was kind-hearted and brought a special spark to those around him. Assistant coach Chris Beaudry recalled fondly how they would alternate bringing a tin of mints to each game after finding one the first game he ever coached. Chris said he was a beautiful guy to be around and was one of the happiest people that he's ever met. Bus driver Glenn Dorkson was described as an outstanding friend, husband, and father. The accolades for Glenn were pouring into social media and his impact on the community was strongly reflected in everyone's comments. It was a tremendous loss. Team captain Logan Schatz had played for the Broncos just over four years and was captain for the last two and a half seasons. He was only 20 years old when he perished, leaving four siblings to comfort the remainder of his family. His close teammate, Jackson Joseph, who played on a line with Logan, also lost his life in the crash. He was 20 years old as well, and a leading scorer in the Junior Hockey League. Darcy Hogan, the head coach of the team, had played junior hockey in the 1990s. He was a hockey guy that was dedicated to his family. His wife, Christina, worked as the team's office manager, so they had deep roots in the Humboldt team organization. Evan Thomas from Saskatoon was known as self-driven and quiet, a self-assured young man who was motivated and retrospective. He was 18 years old and played forward, but he also played baseball and did well at his studies. He was into the team aspect of the sport, and it was thought that the love he had for his teammates exceeded his love of the sport. He really loved his team. Tyler Bieber had been employed as the team's play-by-play -play radio announcer. It was his first year announcing for the team. As his regular beat, he was the morning news host on CHBO. He also was on the coaching staff for the Humboldt's high school basketball and football teams. He was known as someone who set the example of what it means to serve your community. He had a passion for all sports and was a natural talent. The 18-year-old Brody Hines had recently started tallying the Broncos' numbers for the CHBO station under the wing of Tyler Bieber. He was a high school student that was also an intern with the Golden West family and the Bolt FM team. Brody also volunteered at his church and a community kitchen. It was said that Brody was someone who gave more than he received, and if there was ever something he could do to help someone or a place he could volunteer, he was there. 21-year-old Connor Lucan of Slave Lake had joined the Broncos the previous year. He was known as one of the best hockey players, but an even greater guy off the ice. His friend Tyson wrote, that he had known Connor for years and played against him during his minor hockey career and a handful of teams, and he looked up to him as a role model. The youngest member of the team at only 16 was Adam Harold, who had a birthday coming the following week that he would not see. He had been the captain of his AAA midget team called the Regina Pat Canadians. He had only recently been called up to play with the Broncos, known as a wonderful young man that was never afraid to help his teammates. A typical good Saskatchewan farm boy who always loaded and unloaded the bus. 
happy to roll up his sleeves and get things done. Stephen Weck, the 21-year-old defenseman, was also a victim of the crash after playing with the Broncos for two seasons. He was known to live and breathe hockey and was an amazing son, big brother, and cousin. He was seen as ambitious and loving, and his cousin Alicia said he was one of the most loving people she'd ever been blessed to know. Xavier LaBelle, a native of Saskatchewan, was eulogized by his brother Isaac on social media saying, I have no words to describe what I'm feeling. Best friends, teammates, allies, brothers. And stating he was always going to remember that Xavier was someone that would influence him for the rest of his life. Dana Bronze, the only female on the bus, died from injuries that she sustained to her head in the collision. She graduated from the University of Regina in 2016 and attended Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta for advanced training in athletic therapy. She was known as quiet and soft-spoken and always put others ahead of herself, yet had a tremendous loving presence. She was an inspired mind with a positive attitude and a love for sport and big dreams. At first... Parker Tobin was thought to be one of the survivors of the crash, but he was accidentally misidentified as teammate Xavier LaBelle. Parker's family shared memories of how Parker was looking forward to a career in business and had a willingness to help others and a passion for hockey so great that he would play on outdoor rinks regardless of the temperature. He was a quick learner with a big appetite and enjoyed pulling pranks on the coaches for fun. Tobin hailed from Stony Plain, Alberta, and played the position of goaltender for the Broncos. A vigil was held for Parker and his teammate, Connor Lucan, at the Spruce Grove Arena, where hundreds of people attended wearing yellow and green and lined the streets with flowers and ribbons. Left winger, Jacob Licht, who was, in fact, from Humboldt, was 19 years old. He was remembered as a lovable goofball that flew on the ice. His friend, Colton Halverson, recalled that he would always want to smile on others' faces before his own. He was the hardest-working guy on the ice, always giving 110%. It was all about work ethic. In his final game, he scored a hat trick. That made the rink explode into excitement. His family's directive at his funeral was to wear jerseys and bring noisemakers in honor of Jacob's love for the excitement of the game. The tough times were there for all. Every person on the Broncos bus that evening had either perished or was injured, as survivors were getting full-scope insight into their injuries and what their rehabilitation would be structured as the families of those who died in the crash had to move forward with funeral services and arrangements for their loved ones. Canada was mourning the tragedy together, and people were doing anything they could to help. There was a GoFundMe established for the victims and their families that raised more than $1 million in 24 hours, and by the next day, it had reached $4 million. The fund continued to grow beyond anyone's expectations until April 18th. It reached a staggering $15 million. A tribute called Put Your Sticks Out 
was started after a friend began to urge people to leave a hockey stick outside of their front door, saying the boys may need them wherever they are. On April 12, 2018, the hashtag Jerseys for Humboldt encouraged Canadians to wear their jerseys. The cars of those who died remained parked outside the arena with white roses placed on their windshields. There were a multitude of other tributes and events organized to help celebrate the lives lost and to show support for the young men that were struggling after the accident. There was also support being offered for first responders who needed help to come back from the shock and devastation they experienced being on the scene of such a tragedy. The estimations ran as high as 80 first responders on the scene. A crane operator from Tisdale had been called in to hoist the roof off the bus to give access to the first responders. He later commented that he had concern for their well-being after the event because they were the ones getting everyone out and they were the ones making the decisions. In time, however, the focus began to turn to the driver of the semi-trailer truck that caused the accident. Or did it? Very few answers were provided and not much information was given about the driver or what exactly had happened during the accident. The confusion, however, did not leave the driver of the semi-truck out of the mix in the prayers for hope. One Reddit post, titled, Dear Saskatchewan Truck Driver, was posted for the as-of-yet named driver. The post was an effort to communicate to the driver that even though nobody knew the cause of the crash, it was certain that he in no way set out to end 15 lives as he set out on the road. The post ended with a sincere hope that he will be able to heal and wished him well in his efforts to overcome the tragic incident, acknowledging the toll that it must be taking on him and his family. The following week, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, held a press conference on the 18th of April but they only indicated that they were not announcing any charges in the crash and were there only to answer general inquiries about the collision. All that was revealed was that the driver had been taken into custody after the accident and then released. He was still in constant contact with the RCMP and the investigation was further delving into the engine's computers on board of both vehicles as well as the driver's logs and the previous experience of the semi-trailer driver. They did not disclose the speed of either vehicle or determine who was at fault, commenting only that the truck driver was in the intersection at the time of the crash. By the next day, the RCMP were back on the case to do additional analysis and reconstruction of the event using vehicles that were similar to those involved in the crash. They wanted to do further measurements and analyze sight lines. Over the next while, over 5,500 photos of the crime scene were taken to document the investigation. Also, the use of drones and 3D imaging technology was used. The survivors continued to be on the mend in different stages of recovery. The physical rehabilitation was one step and the grueling emotional rehabilitation was another. The surviving 13 players suffered from a scope of serious injuries, including paralysis, back pain, brain damage, 
and severe cognitive and mental health issues. In May of 2018, the Broncos began to look ahead to the start of the next hockey season. It was time to begin looking to replace positions and ready the new head coach, Nathan Oistrich. The numbers of each player on the bus during the crash had been formally retired. Active players would keep their number until the conclusion of their membership with the team, and then their numbers would be officially retired. Finally, on July 6th of 2018, the RCMP announced that they would be holding a news conference after making an arrest in the collision case. The driver, 29-year-old Yaskarat Singh Sidhu of Calgary, Alberta, would be facing 16 counts of dangerous driving causing death and 13 counts of dangerous driving causing bodily harm. He was released on bail for $1,000 and must continue to reside in his Calgary home, adhere to a curfew, and was to surrender his passport and, of course, not legally able to drive. People were shocked by the news that Sidhu had only been operating the semi-trailer truck for such a short time before being sent out on the highway on his own. Questions began to swirl about his sobriety, his possible distraction from a mobile device, or possibly exhaustion from being overworked. Photos from the intersection were reprinted online. Some speculated that the tree line at the stop sign had possibly obstructed his view of oncoming traffic. It was all speculation in an unconscious wish to have a reasonable explanation for the senseless tragedy. However, relief seemed to set in that the driver of the bus was in no way responsible. There was no mention of his inability to react or any finding of fault in his operation of the Broncos bus. Nobody would really know, though, until the charges were answered in court and the findings of the investigation were revealed. As time before the charges edged on, people eagerly celebrated as more and more of the Humboldt players hit milestones in their recovery. One of the last young men to leave the hospital was Lane Matichuk. Six months after the crash, he finally walked himself out of a Saskatoon hospital and headed home. At 18, he was still working on his recovery he had lost significant mobility in his right side and was working hard to improve his speech. Still, only responding with one or two words at a time, he was sure to communicate that he was happy and getting stronger every day. He had so much family support championing him on. In one Global News interview, his sister Carly welled up as she said, he's definitely getting back to his old self a little bit. He still has a way to go, but it's nice to have a conversation with him again. It was then that the rest of Lane's family began to stress how important driver awareness and patience is on the road. That family Thanksgiving long weekend was exciting. It was the first time that the family was back together again at home. The following September, the Humboldt Broncos hit the ice to play their first team game since the crash last spring. 
Many of the surviving players attended and followed the game. They played the Nipawin team, and it was televised across Canada on the sports network, as well as the NHL network in the United States. They didn't win the season opener. But in a game closing out at 2-1, to one, it was exciting when the Broncos scored the first goal that game. In October of 2018, the owner of the trucking company that employed Mr. Sadu was charged with violating federal and provincial safety regulations. The charges read as follows. Two counts of failure to require a daily log. Two counts of keeping multiple daily logs for a single day. Three counts of failure to monitor their driver's compliance with the relevant regulation. And one count a failure to have or follow a written safety program. The new year came, and by the 8th of January, there was big news in the case of the collision. Sadio had entered a guilty plea to all counts. The families and friends of the Humboldt Broncos would not be forced to sit through a lengthy trial and forced to continue to relive the details of the crash in the search for justice. Judge Inez Cardinal scheduled sentencing to begin on January 28th in Melford, Saskatchewan. It felt like a wash of relief for the public and no doubt the families and friends of the victims. Sidhu's lawyer, Mark Brayford, addressed the media outside of the court in Melford, Saskatchewan, saying Sidhu feels terrible and is very sorry, adding, his position to me was, I just want to plead guilty. He stated that Mr. Sadu advised him, I don't want to make things any worse. He's overwhelmed by the expressions of sympathy and kindness that some of the families and players have expressed to him, in spite of the fact that their grief is entirely his fault. Family members were on board after the hearing and expressed gratitude for his plea. The father of victim Evan Thomas came forward. It means a lot. To hear him use his own words to plead guilty was powerful. He added he wasn't concerned about the length of Jaskarat's sentence. He would have to live with the guilty plea and what happened that day for the rest of his life. Another parent was noted as saying he didn't set out that day to do this. His son Ryan was paralyzed from the chest down in the crash. At that time, the maximum punishment for the crimes was 14 years on each count of dangerous driving causing death and 10 years for each count of dangerous driving causing injury. Since the catastrophe, laws had been reviewed and updated to include a life in prison for the charges. However, Jaskarat could only be sentenced under the laws in place at the time of his charges being laid. On October of January 2019, the court would reconvene for victim impact statements to be heard. During the sentencing hearing, the agreed statement of facts were delivered in a Milton, Saskatchewan court. It was revealed that the semi did not stop prior to entering the intersection and left no tire marks from braking. The road conditions were considered safe for driving, and both highways were smooth, dry, level, and with no surface failures. No environmental conditions contributed to the collision. The sky was clear and the position of the sun was not a factor leading up to the collision. The intersection was clearly visible to Mr. Sadu as he approached. 
a special note was made that trees in the south quadrant would not have obstructed the driver's view. The semi-trailer was in good working order and there was no mechanical issues. Alcohol and drugs were not a factor and the driver was not distracted as the result of using a cell phone at the time of the collision. The injuries were noted in court for the surviving victims and they were overwhelming. Brain hemorrhages, nerve damage, brain injuries, neck fractures, lacerations on major internal organs, fractured skulls, permanent paralyzation from the chest and navel down. Young men put back together with rods and screws, and there were too many concussions and spinal cord injuries to keep track of as the injuries were read out for each of the 13 victims. They, however, were the lucky ones. The 14 other victims' names were read out and named as deceased at the scene of the collision, and the remaining two names were those of that who died in the hospital as a result of their injuries. It took five days to cover the hearings and 90 victim impact statements were filed with the court. The majority were read in open court by family members or by Miss Olenchuk, the Crown Counsel. Four survivors of the collision declined to provide victim impact statements, as is their right. The loss expressed was termed by the sitting judge as staggering. She thanked them for coming forward to share their experiences and to speak of such intimate pain and overwhelming sorrow. Families and friends expressed being unable to cope, unable to work, and listless with the inability to concentrate. Some found it difficult to even respond to a simple inquiry into how they are doing without being completely overwhelmed. Many reported depression, anxiety, and emotional outbursts that plagued them, and many had turned to counseling, medication, and their faith and friends. Others reported turning inward and isolating themselves completely. It was noted that many of the families that saw their loved ones recovering felt that they were putting on a brave face to be strong and they were trying not to upset others. As adults, they expressed concern, knowing they will face significant hurdles as the full impact of their injuries become realized and they move on to their lives after this tragedy is behind them. Some expressed forgiveness for Mr. Sadhu and others remained angry and claim he can never be forgiven. Most were unable to say, but hoped eventually that they would come to a place in their life where they could forgive him. It was noted that Mr. Sadhu was cooperating with the police voluntarily and fully complied with the conditions of his release. He had no prior criminal record and he took full responsibility for the collision and admitted that he took on more than he should have, given his level of training and lack of skill. He expressed deep remorse to the court. He addressed the families directly and apologized to them. During the days of the hearing, the media would grab photos as Jaskarat entered and exited the court with his lawyers. Early in the days leading up to the impact statements being read, he appeared sharp and well-dressed, pulled together and presented well. As the hearings continued, he attended court still dressed sharply, but his demeanor was beginning to fall apart. He could be seen appearing overwhelmed and emotional, 
but trying to maintain his courage. One photo of him sitting in the vehicle leaving the hearings showed Jaskarat appearing to be the shell of himself with his face in his hand and his eyes glassy. He looked emotionally exhausted and the families attending were a rage of emotions, most seemingly overwhelmed, others at peace and somber, some seemingly still in the throes of disbelief at the situation, even so many months later. One parent stated, The fact that people say you made a mistake makes me want to throw up. You knew what you were doing, and because of your actions we are all grieving the loss. It was an emotional time for all parties. Scott Thomas, whose son Evan perished in the crash, had a shock when Jaskarat's brother tapped him and asked if he would meet with the family at the end of the day. Mr. Sadu had a group of supporters behind him during the hearings of about 20 persons. They mostly stayed to themselves, but did have some interaction with others in the gallery. Scott met the family of Mr. Sadu in a small room in the back at the end of the day. He said Mr. Sadu asked him how he could ever make it right and repeated that he was so, so sorry for this day. Mr. Thomas generously told him he had done everything that was in his power by pleading guilty and sparing a drawn-out trial, saving the families a lot of grief. Mr. Thomas accepted Jaskarat's apology, stating afterwards, It was a powerful moment in both of our lives. I think it's what I asked for. He said there were other parts of the conversation, but he would like to keep that private, observing that the range of human tragedy is unbelievable in the case, and any time he thinks it can't get any deeper, something happens to continually break his heart. He also said that there were a couple of family members attending with Mr. Sadu in the meeting, and he could see the pain in their faces. When asked if he harbored any ill feeling towards anyone in this tragedy, he said his strongest feelings are reserved for the system that allowed Sadu on the road with so little experience and training. He said he had a horrible feeling that there were hundreds of others just as ill-equipped on the road right now, and his long-lasting hard feelings are towards the company that employed Sadu. The industry that allowed this to happen and a government that let Sadu legally behind the wheel alone. Claiming there were no winners regardless of the outcome. It was noted that the sentencing was reserved for March the 22nd. On April 13th of 2018, it was announced by the Saskatchewan Government Insurance that plans were in the works to improve training standards for truck drivers by the next calendar year. Before then, certified schools that offered training was not required. Legally, there seemed to be few snafus, only one fake GoFundMe account that was poorly designed and a fundraising website that included misinformation and obituaries that were full of glaring errors that promised to provide an online memorial candle or flowers, but no monetary donation to anyone associated with the Broncos. There was a smaller, disturbing situation when the Saskatchewan Privacy Commissioner found several people had inappropriately gained access to the health records of the team members involved in the crash. 
eHealth Saskatchewan had begun monitoring the electronic profiles of the crash victims that included information about lab results, medical information, and chronic diseases. They discovered that from April 9th, three days after the crash, to May 15th, a minimum of seven users accessed the system to view profiles for up to 10 patients. Most of the culprits were doctors. However, one was an employee of a medical clinic that reviewed information on three victims. She admitted consulting the records because family members heard of one death and was searching for confirmation. Another was someone she thought was a patient of the clinic. And lastly, she was seeking to confirm a detail that the media had reported. One doctor had reviewed the injuries for one individual and had searched for information about his care or if he was on an instant fatality list. It was determined that this did not fall in line with the need to know rule. Some doctors were reviewing records of patients that they had treated, believing they were in the circle of care. However, the report found that the need to know is not, gee, I might like to know. And although the privacy commissioner believed that the physician cited acted in good faith out of sincere concern, it was still considered a breach of privacy. And retraining and regular audits would have to be part of the digital record security process. March 4th of 2019, the last Humboldt player was released from the hospital. 19-year-old Morgan Gobio was photographed holding the sign that the assistant coach left for each player to autograph as they left the hospital. It was intended to stay until the final injured player was released to go home. The yellow plexi sign was covered in signatures that said, Believe, boldly written in the center. It was only after nearly 333 days and numerous surgeries, along with physical, occupational, and speech therapy, that he was able to finally go home. He was still unable to walk or talk, but his family expressed hopefulness that those milestones may be things they can celebrate in the future. Finally, that spring on March 22nd, Judge Cardinal was able to give her sentencing decision. She acknowledged, with counsel, that no similar case involving the offense of dangerous driving with such tragic consequences was on the books. The Crown submitted a sentence of 10 years of incarceration on each of the 29 counts running concurrently would be an appropriate sentence. They recognized the factors such as an early guilty plea and Mr. Sadu's sincere remorse, but they pointed out that there remains a high level of moral blameworthiness. The aggregating factors outweighed the mitigating ones and a lengthy period of incarceration was necessary. The defense suggested the appropriate range of sentences to be from 14 months to four and a half years incarceration. Mr. Sidhu had no criminal record before this and a clean driving record. He had entered a guilty plea at the earliest opportunity. The offender is extremely remorseful, and further to that, he is a permanent resident of Canada, they stated. However, he was not a citizen, and he would be subjected to an order of removal if his sentence exceeded the determined time frame. 
both parties agreed to a period of incarceration and that that would be appropriate. Judge Cardinal recognized that no sentence imposed would make the victims or their families whole again or ease their suffering. She also acknowledged that the collision was avoidable. Mr. Sadu had missed key indicators of an approaching intersection and his prolonged inattention resulted in tragic consequences. It was maintained that he had a clear view of the scene in front of him. In fact, Despite the size and weight of the rig calculations, it had been shown that under the conditions at 96 kilometers per hour in a panic situation, the unit could have been brought to a full stop just shy of 119 meters. The semi, if he had made a hard break at the stop sign, would have skidded, but the impact would have been narrowly but completely averted. Instead, the semi had straddled both lanes of the oncoming bus and left no avenue for the escape. The judge declared, It's baffling and incomprehensible that a professional driver, even one with little experience, could miss so many markers over such a long distance. His inattention displays risky behavior, given he saw the signs but that they did not register because he continued to focus on the trailers behind him. I find Mr. Sadu's moral blameworthiness to be high, especially considered his prolonged inattentiveness while operating a large, loaded semi and the tragic consequences that flowed from these actions. Seconds matter. Attention to the road matters. The judge deemed concurrent sentences were appropriate, and given the offenses all rise from the same circumstance. On the first count of dangerous driving causing death, Mr. Sadu was sentenced to eight years incarceration. On each of the 13 counts of dangerous driving causing bodily harm, he was given five years incarceration. That was to be served concurrent to each other and concurrent to the first sentence of eight years. He was also ordered to provide a DNA sample and was handled a firearms prohibition for good measure. On March 27th, Sukhmander Singh, the owner of the Calgary-based trucking company that employed Jaskarat Singh, pleaded guilty to five charges. The charges were relating to federal and provincial safety measures. The owner and operator of Adash Diol Trucking Limited admitted that he did not follow established rules under both the Motor Vehicle Transport Act and the Alberta Traffic Safety Act. Originally, his charges included eight counts that included failure to maintain proper logbooks and failing to implement safety programs. Judge Sean Dunnigan imposed a fine of $1,000 for each offense, totaling a $5,000 fine, asking, Is this the end of the road in this very sad story? His guilty pleas came only days after Sadu was sentenced to eight years in prison. Life goes on, so they say, and the survivors continue to make strides. Derek Powder returned to the ice for the first time 11 weeks after his surgery. Braden Cameron played his final year with the Broncos, scoring 55 regular season points and 12 more during the playoffs. Caleb Dahlgren 
accepted an offer to play hockey at York University. Although he isn't quite able to play full contact, he's always wearing the number 16 in honor of his fallen teammates. Bryce Fisk attended the University of Ontario's Institute of Technology, where he plays hockey for the Ridgebacks. Matthew Gomerick, my hometown boy from Winnipeg, was recruited by the same Institute of Technology and is majoring in kinesiology. Nick Shulmansky was recruited by the University of Prince Edward Island Panthers. And Grayson Cameron returned to hockey as an assistant coach with the Red Deer Optimist Chiefs. Lane Matichuk continues to amaze his family with his hard work to rehabilitate. He's beginning to speak more and more and can now walk again. Ryan Strashinsky never gives up. Paralyzed from his chest down, he's refused to give up and is working out with the former coach of the Canada's National Men's Sledge Hockey Team. He has dreams of playing in the 2026 Winter Olympics, saying, there's so much to work for. Jacob Wasserman was left largely paralyzed, but has gone on to play sledge hockey. He drives a modified truck and still has the goal of walking again, but stays positive, saying it's way, way down the road, if at all possible. I'm just doing my best. Of all that pain and sadness for now, there is some resolution for what that's worth. And what of Carly Hunking and her boyfriend, Dorian Roulette, that were also killed by a semi-driver that neglected to stop at a sign as he turned onto the highway and crashed into the young couple without warning, ending their lives immediately. On April 17th of this spring, just barely a month after the driver of the Broncos crash was sentenced to eight years, Gurjant Singh pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of careless driving causing death in a Portage La Prairie courtroom. The judge said the case was different because the driver in the Humboldt case missed several notices or warning signs, while Gurjat only missed the one stop sign. He said that the driver's failure to notice the flashing lights was a moment of inadvertence and not intentional, which justified the criminal charges being stayed or otherwise known as dropped. The sentence didn't offer any sense of justice or closure. He was given a $3,000 fine and a one-year driving suspension. It's mortifying for the families of these two victims. The glaring difference was that the driver in this case was actually making a turn across the lanes into the highway. So he was more than aware of his position on the road. No one turns into a far lane across an existing lane of moving traffic without stopping to view the oncoming traffic, even if their light is green. His was red and flashing. I suppose I don't know enough about the law to discriminate the difference. And like Ryan Strachinsky, I'm just doing my best. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Writing About Crime. Until next time.